Hello, you marvellous, marvellous geeky people. Welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. And we start with some... I was going to say bad news. It's not really bad news. It's not good news. It's mildly irritating news from my point of view. Because as I speak, as I record this on the morning of September the 8th, 2022, a perfect world, the Artemis 1 mission would be probably in lunar orbit. Actually, maybe just approaching lunar orbit. Spoilers, it isn't. In fact, as I record this on the morning of September the 8th, 2022, the Artemis 1 mission atop the very first space launch system rocket is in the vertical assembly building at the Kennedy Space Center because it ain't launching till next month at the earliest. What went wrong? Well, nothing major, if we're honest, and I don't want to make too big, too much of a big deal about it, really, although I suppose I am a bit. They scrubbed the launch that had been planned for Saturday. They scrubbed it because there was an issue with one of the four main engines. These are the space shuttle-style liquid-fueled engines. They're cooled by liquid hydrogen, and there was a leak in the cooling system of one of the four engines. It wasn't something they could fix on the pad, they decided. And because basically time's not really that pressing, they figured the best thing to do, take the whole shebang back indoors, have a look at it, fix it, maybe swap some parts out, uh, and then try again next month. They do have to be cautious. They really do. Because this is a prototype rocket carrying another prototype spacecraft. Uh, the Orion space module atop the European service module are also untested. Everything about this rocket is new. All of the parts, pretty much, in the SLS are descended from parts that we know well from the shuttle launches, but they've never been using this configuration before. And there is so much fuel aboard one of these things at launch. If something goes wrong, you have a massive fireball and quite a big crater on the coast. Of Florida and nobody wants that. So given that time is not that pressing, it's better to wait, launch when you know it's going to work and have a successful mission than it is to go, oh let's give it a go, Apollo would have given it a go, let's just give it a go and then have a massive failure which actually would set the program back quite a long way. So Artemis 1 matters. And because it does, it's important to get it right. I was going to do a big feature on Artemis 1 in this show. I think I'm not now. Uh, what I was going to do, I think I said this last week, was talk you through all of the various science missions that are on board this uncrewed spacecraft. I think I'll wait until it's launching. So, you know, towards the end of this month, uh, beginning of next month, we'll probably do that. Uh, it gives me some more time to do a bit more research. Uh, and get a few more facts in there for you. Uh, in the meantime, I am happy to report that whilst NASA is having trouble getting off the ground, ESA is doing just fine. Thank you very much. Uh, the European heavy launcher, the Ariane 5, uh, launched last week to put the next generation... I'm reading from an, an, a, a, an ESA tweet here. So, uh, The next generation Connect VHTS satellite into a geostationary orbit uh, it's the 114th Ariane 5 mission and the 258th Ariane mission overall, because obviously the Ariane 5 is the fifth iteration of the Ariane. It's also quite elderly, and the new iteration of Ariane, the imaginatively titled Ariane 6, is due, I think, next year, which has even more lift capability and is an even better launch vehicle. And we should take a moment to praise the Ariane 5. It is a spectacular heavy launch vehicle. It's better than anything NASA have ever had. It was the Ariane 5 that was responsible for getting the James Webb Space Telescope into the right orbit with such precision, they reckon it's got 20 years more life in it because it didn't use as much propellant as they'd estimated because the Ariane 5 is so good. The Ariane 6 is going to be better. So Yale's Yay, ESA, and I can say that because although we're not part of the EU anymore, we are still very much a part of the European Space Agency. Long may that continue. 
And I know I didn't do the jingle and all of that, but I think I'm just going to leave space there for now because there's a whole bunch of stuff that's happening, but it's all, everything's kind of up in the air. Nothing, oh, actually, no pun intended. Really sorry about that. I'm going to leave it in, but really sorry about that. Everything is kind of up in the air, though. Um, nothing concrete is happening. There's there's lots of really pretty pictures coming from the JWST, but that's not exactly radio gold, is it? And, you know, I can put links in the show notes to JWST pictures if you like, but honestly, you'll find them much faster by using Google. So we'll wrap space there and we'll instead get into television. Oh, yes, because everyone's really happy and loving it. And no one's got any complaints to make at all about any aspect of geek themed television. It's all just going swimmingly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it isn't really, is it? Um, Look, I'm going to do the review of She-Hulk episode three in a minute. I want to take a second to talk about something just general. OK, um, about this before, I'm going to try and make sure this isn't the boring preachy part, but this is an issue that is impossible to ignore and it keeps coming up. So diversity in casting. I'm going to take a second to talk about Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power. This is not a review. Uh, this may become a rant, but it's not a review. I love the Lord of the Rings. OK, Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit. I've read most of Tolkien. I've never managed to get through the Silmarillion, but I've read most of Tolkien. I am a huge, huge fan of Tolkien, of Middle Earth, of all of that. I loved the Peter Jackson movies. And then I heard that Amazon was going to do The Rings of Power. And I thought, not keen. And so, you know, I had very little interest. I, I had really thought that I would probably not bother watching the rings of power because ah uh, really but then people that i know and trust kept telling me once the first couple of episodes had dropped that it was brilliant and i should look at it so i did and i agree uh, and that's as much of a review of the rings of power as you're getting for now but then suddenly we get the diversity thing again and ah uh, so many people seem so invested in the idea that there can't be any people of colour in fantasy because it's not the law. That's L-O-R-E, although lots of people on Twitter are misspelling it. And I find the whole thing inexplicable and frustrating. And I, I find the reaction of people who take the view that having a black hobbit is some way um, a, a massive sin against the great god Tolkien their reaction when people say it doesn't matter is again equally frustrating look here's the thing right if you can accept a world with hobbits and elves and orcs and dragons in it but the idea that there might be a black person is absolutely beyond your ability to comprehend i'm not sure what to tell you I'm not going to call you names. I, I am going to look at you slightly funny. OK, I just am because I don't understand why it's important. If I say to you. Oh, really? You have a problem with the Black Hobbit? OK, I mean, Tolkien never said anything about their colour, except that they had the, the, the half-foots had nut brown skin. And you say, oh, right. So I'm racist now, am I? Just because I want to stick to how it was in the books. And I think, do you know what, maybe, maybe just a little bit, maybe you are. And the reason I think that is if your objection is simply that that's not what Tolkien said, then why get so defensive? Why not just say, yeah, you know, I just don't like it. It's, it's not, it doesn't match the picture in my head. It doesn't work for me. And that's fine. You know, you watch it and you do you. That response I get. You know, I mean, I, I never pictured the Hobbits as having particularly dark skin either. Although, as I look back at my Tolkien, I note that, in fact, as I say, they are described, some of them, as having nut brown skin. Uh, Sam is described as being browner than Frodo. And I don't know what Tolkien intended there, but certainly as a casting director, you can work with it. And if you jump into a discussion 
between people, you know, one of whom is saying it's ridiculous that hobbits and elves can be black because they're not. And, it's, and someone's saying that and someone else is saying, yeah, but it doesn't matter. And anyway, Tolkien said this. And, and you know, and if you jump into that discussion with, well, I don't like the Rings of Power. I think it's rubbish. Am I racist too? Then, first of all, what? And second of all, I don't know. And maybe, but no. I mean, if you don't like the Rings of Power because you don't like the Rings of Power, because you don't like the acting, you don't like the casting, you find the story boring, you think it's too slow, fine. No, that doesn't make you racist. If you don't like the Rings of Power because it's got black people in it, then they, yeah, that probably does make you racist. Just as, you know, if you didn't like Sandman because you thought it was too slow or deviated too much from the source material, or you didn't think Tom Sturridge was a good actor, or any of that, again, that's fine. That's fine. We can disagree about that. We all have our own opinions. We all have our own tastes. That's fine. But if you didn't like Sandman because Death was black, then, yeah, you're a racist. I don't understand why people have a problem with figuring this out. Now, as it happens, I'm enjoying The Rings of Power. I do think it's slow. I think anyone who doesn't like it because it's slow probably just doesn't like slow things. And that's fine. But as I say, if you don't like The Rings of Power because it's got black people in it, then have a chat with yourself. So to be clear, you are allowed to not like things. That is fine. But if you're going to publicly make a big fuss about the reason you're not liking something is because it has people of colour in it, then people are going to make assumptions about you based on that. That's all I'm saying. I hate, I really hate that these discussions keep coming up because we're geeks. We're supposed to be inclusive. The thing that increasingly I'm having to accept about geek culture is that it often isn't. And I hate that. So as a group, shall we please try and do better? Can we be a bit more tolerant of other people's views? But also, can we be a bit more tolerant of people who are not exactly like us. Both things are important, okay? We can't just go around calling people racist because they don't like a thing we like. If a person's reason for not liking the thing is because they don't like the idea that people of colour have been in it, then those people do need calling out. Here endeth the boring preachy part. I really hope I never have to say any of this again. I'm going to have to say all this again, aren't I, at some point? Oof. Anyway, enough, enough, enough. Let's move on to something a bit more positive because I'm sick to death of all the negativity that is on social media right now. So, She-Hulk, episode three, the trial of Emil Blotsky. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, do you know what? She-Hulk is still not my favourite Marvel show, but the bar for that is pretty high. In a world where we have Ms. Marvel and the Falcon and the Winter Soldier and WandaVision and Loki, Hawkeye. In that world, being my favourite Marvel show is difficult. So it's not a criticism of She-Hulk to say it ain't my favourite show. I am, however, continuing to enjoy the heck out of it. And there are going to be spoilers from now on for She-Hulk episode 3. If you're listening to this on the day it drops on the 8th of September 2022, this episode has been out for a week. But nevertheless, fair warning, here's the spoiler horn. Spoilers! Spoilers! Okay, so we pick up where we left off at the end of episode 2. Jen had accepted the case of Emil Blosky. She was going to defend him or represent him but it's not really defense is it she's going to represent him at his parole hearing he of course is the abomination who fought her cousin bruce in that movie that no one talks about bruce was quite literally a different person the problem at the end of episode two was that he'd been filmed in a secret fight club having escaped from the maximum security damage control jail that he was in it turns out he wasn't a willing jailbreaker. He had, in fact, been busted out of his maximum security jail through a portal created by Wong. 
the MCU's current Sorcerer Supreme. Because Wong needed a worthy opponent to fight in some ritual or other. He was doing a pet. Tests he needed to pass. Uh, there was a, a, a really cute, cute little reference to Wolverine. There he said he'd already fought somebody with, with steel claws or something like that. It was a nice little reference. But Blonsky's defence is not only was he not a willing jailbreaker, as soon as he'd done what Wong wanted him to do, which didn't hurt anybody, he insisted that Wong bring him right back to his cell. So that should not affect his parole. And Jess successfully argues this. And Blonsky is released to a new life on a ranch far away from everywhere with his seven soulmates. Although the art at, over the end credits does seem to suggest that he then left his seven soulmates behind. May suggest that Blonsky, beautifully and expertly portrayed by the brilliant Tim Roth, may not be as reformed as previously stated. I don't know. Maybe that doesn't go anywhere. Maybe it does. Maybe that was a, 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 a just a throwaway gag. Maybe, maybe it wasn't. We'll see. Anyway, in a separate arc, in the same episode, we see Jess beginning to deal with her unwanted newfound celebrity. All she wants to do is keep her head down and be a really good lawyer. But the world doesn't want her to. People have opinions. Uh, there was a brilliant montage of critical social media comments uh, about Jessica She-Hulk, which so perfectly mirrored the negative social media posts that a certain section of fandom was making when the show was first announced. Uh, you know, stuff along the lines of, why's everything got to be female now? And we don't want this forced diversity and all, all of that kind of stuff, which I thought it was a really fun meta moment. Somebody in the production team clearly has a sense of humour. Jess is trying to deal with all of this and she she agrees to go on TV and that doesn't particularly go well. And, you know, there are people who are protesting her, which she finds weird, but she is representing a high-profile supervillain. And I think the public reaction to that was fairly realistically portrayed, I would have said. And then we had the other story in this episode. They do cram a lot. These are like not much more than half hour episodes. They do cram a heck of a lot in. But her former colleague at the attorney's office, the egotistical narcissist, Dennis Bukowski, is suing somebody for fraud, basically, because they were in a relationship. He was buying her things. And she turns out not, in fact, to have been the person he thought she was, but a shape changing Elf, Runa, brilliantly played by Peg O'Keefe. This whole thing is played for laughs and brilliantly done. Uh, Bukowski is definitely the butt of the jokes. Believed that he was dating a music star called Megan the Stallion, and that as part of that courtship, he bought her all kinds of gifts. Now, everybody says to him, "Mate, you're an idiot. You bought her. I forget what car it was, but it was like it wasn't. It was something like a Toyota Prius. And like, can you really see Megan the Stallion driving one of those? Come on. And Runa's defence uh, against the lawsuit is uh, no, of course, you know, it was role play. He knew exactly who I was. Everything was consensual. Um, you know, I, I, no one of his intelligence. He's you know, he's a lawyer. It it it, it would be ridiculous for him to say that he thought he was dating Megan the Stallion. Bukowski's lawyer has a problem here because nobody can believe that. But he talks to his friend Jennifer Walters and says, look, you know the guy. What, what, would, what would you do? And she says, look, of course he's a big enough egotist to believe he was dating a movie, a, a movie star, a rock star. Of course he's a big enough egotist to do that. Um, and so Bukowski's lawyer puts Jenny on the stand. And Jen basically says, yeah. Yeah, it's, I absolutely believe that he believed he was dating Megan the Stallion. And so Bukowski wins his lawsuit, much to his chagrin, because of course he's been made to look like a fool. Fun. It was nicely done. Um, I do have a confession to make, though. Um, when they started talking about the fact that he thought he was dating someone called Megan the Stallion, I was basically assuming that this was a made-up character, uh, and, you know, a star 
a character in the MCU, not a real person. It turns out she's a real person. I'm old. That's it. That's just it. I'm old and I'm out of touch. So, yeah. Apologies to Ms. The Stallion. There has, apparently, been some controversy about Ms. The Stallion's appearance in the end credits sequence. Or the post credit sequence, I suppose you'd call it. Uh, in which she is seen in the office of Jennifer Walters twerking with She-Hulk. Now, I just thought... Well, actually, I'll tell you what I thought. Uh, I thought that I still don't find twerking attractive, but also that it doesn't matter because... It was two women having a laugh, and so, yeah, it wasn't for me. But also, that was the bit where I thought, oh, well, she must be a real person then, or they wouldn't have put her in the end, you know, it wouldn't have been funny to put her in the post credit sequence. So that's how I discovered the existence of Megan the Stallion. There you go. Apparently, though, this is the worst thing that's ever happened in the Marvel Universe, according to some people. I've been told that it's the ultimate cringe that it's completely inappropriate for a show that kids will watch, and that Stan Lee will be turning in his grave at this egregious sexualization of his character. And you know what? Boring preachy mode back on. Uh, strap yourselves in. I'm going to address that. Because, first of all, She-Hulk isn't particularly aimed at children. It would have been very inappropriate for Ms. Marvel to do twerking. Because... It's not part of her cultural thing. And, you know, yes, that, that might have been the sexualization of a teenage girl, which I'm against. But Megan V. Stallion and Jennifer Walters or or Tatiana Maslany, whichever one you want to focus on, they're all grown adults. If they want to work, that's fine. Because also... Yeah, I suppose twerking is kind of a sexualized thing in some circumstances. But this was two women getting their groove on, having a good time. There was nothing sexual about that scene at all. And even if there were, I find it difficult to believe that Stan Lee, the man who co-created Stripperella, would have had a problem with it. In fact, I'm absolutely certain that he would not have had a problem with it, because... She-Hulk does that kind of thing, or certainly used to do that kind of thing, in the comics all the time. I direct you to the show notes, dear listener, where you will see, amongst other things, the cover of the Sensational She-Hulk issue 40, uh, which was published way, way back on the 7th of April 1992. And on that cover, she is naked, covered only by a very small Comics Code Authority poster, which she's sort of trying to pull over herself, which is now, looking back at it, a bit of an uncomfortable image. And on that cover, someone is handing her a skipping rope and over her objections is saying, quit stalling, Shulky, we've got 22 pages to fill. And she is later seen skipping naked in that comic, uh, with sort of the speed lines of the skipping rope appearing in um, strategic anatomical locations, shall we say. And that's all in the show notes. So do I think Stan Lee would have had a problem with She-Hulk twerking? I do not, sir. I absolutely do not. So why is there so much hate for this show, which is really good fun? And there does seem to be a lot of online hate. The fact that people are getting all in a lather about She-Hulk twerking makes me think that people are looking for things to complain about. Now, I don't know why that is. Is it just because it is a female-focused show? Is it because it's a female-focused show that addresses issues that women face in society like misogyny, like the fact that they get belittled by men? Uh, is it the fact that it's prepared to go after that kind of man, um, like Bukowski, for instance? Is it is it that there are so many men whose masculinity is so damn fragile that they can't cope with the idea 
of a show like this. I really hope not. I really, really hope not. I think it might be. And if that's the case, there's a section of fandom that needs to grow the flip up. If you're someone who just doesn't find it funny and doesn't like it, that's fine. I'm not talking to you. But yeah, I refer you to my earlier comments about the Rings of Power. And we are sliding into negativity again, and I'm not having it. We are going to remain positive on this show. So we will move on to stuff that people aren't whining about. So yeah, let's jump into some comics recommendations. And I've got a few. First of all, I want to talk to you about the last line because it's interesting. Basically, what we have here uh, is a, a story about the London Underground. We have a train driver. Underground train driver has her first fatality. Somebody falls, she is told, in front of her train. She is convinced that the person was pushed. She's shown the CCTV. Clearly shows there was nobody else on the platform. But she knows what she saw. Then she's contacted by an MI6 agent who thinks that something might be going on. She's thrust into an adventure that she never wanted and may not survive. There's a lot of action here. There's a lot of verbal sparring. And it's the kind of alternative London that put me in mind a little bit of um, Paul Cornell's Shadow Police series or Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere really really enjoyed it uh written by richard dick with art by jose holder um colors from kelly fitzpatrick and letters from dave sharp it's out now from aftershock it is four pounds fifty if you pre-ordered it at destination venus or 480 if you did not uh because those are the price rises we've had to put in because inflation also very very much worthy of your attention is antioch now, this is from Image Comics. It's by uh, Patrick Kindlen, uh, with art by Marco Ferrari, letters by Jim Campbell. It's in the same universe as the comic Frontiersman. You don't need to have read Frontiersman to get this, in the same way as you don't need to have read Spider-Man to understand Thor. But it is in the same universe, and I think they're trying to build kind of a superhero universe here. What we have is basically an eco-superhero. Um, he's... Tioch is taking a stand against the sort of big companies that are despoiling the forests and planting monocultures. Lots of action. It's also just fun. Really gritty art style. Um, out this week, as I say, from Image Comics, it is $3.50 if you pre-ordered it at Destination Venus, or $3.75 if you did not. And I also just want to give a shout out to Erratic Recharged. Now, I missed the first season of this. Um, this is a four, part one of a four issue series. AWA, um, which is a relatively new comics publisher. Uh, it's by Carr uh, Andrews and Brian Reber. And it's the story of a teen superhero who puts me in mind a little bit of early Spider-Man, although not similar powers. Basically, this kid, Oliver Leaf, got superpowers from this weird sort of dark force, which is probably a bad thing. It does only work for 10 minutes a day. That's the, that's the twist. And I really like it. It's, it's fun. It's fast. Lots of action. And as I say, it puts me in mind of a young Peter Parker. This is a kid who's at school. He's bullied. He has these powers, but he can't unleash them. And so he's dealing with all of those frustrations targeted at teenagers but i'm 50 and i enjoyed it so there you go so that's erratic recharged part one of four out this week uh, that too is 350 if you pre-ordered it or 375 if you didn't and finally in this slot a shout out for something from marvel which i don't do very often and more than that it's a shout out for the avengers who i'm not really a fan of in the comics but i am a fan of action-packed comics that are huge amounts of fun and this definitely counts what we have here is, if I'm not particularly familiar with, um, 
of the familiar ones, we've got Iron Man, Thor, Captain America, Captain Marvel, and Black Panther. But they're joined by Spider-Man and Spider-Woman. And I've not seen I've not seen Spider-Man on the Avengers since the 80s. And as far as I'm aware, Jessica Drew was never uh, as, uh, an Avenger. But hey, I could be wrong. I don't pay that much attention to the Avengers. And we start with Captain Marvel, who is possessed, essentially challenging Iron Man and Thor to a fight. And uh, so that gets underway. That's on page two. At the same time, we've got Blade, Captain America and Spider-Woman having teleported into an alien ship out various alien guards while at the same time Spider-Man and Black Panther are piloting another alien ship to rendezvous. I won't get into why because you should read this comic. It's The action is relentless. It, very much in the tradition of non-stop Spider-Man and that seems to be deliberate if you read the, um, the little blurb at the back. This is a comic that doesn't care about plot doesn't care about character, it just cares about action. And it throws the action at you relentlessly, page after page after page. Web swinging, shield slinging, hammer hurling action. Just hugely, hugely enjoyable, and I, for one, am here for it. I love comics that are, that are profound and deep and that have something to say. I love all that, but just sometimes. Just sometimes you just want action. And All Out Avengers delivers it in spades. Out now from Marvel Comics, obviously. Uh, it's written by Derek Landy. Uh, art from Greg Land uh, and Jay Leaston with colour from Frank DeMarta. Uh, letters by Corey Petty from, from VC. And it is brilliant. As I said, it's 350 if you pre-ordered it, 375 if you didn't, and it's worth every single penny of that. And with that, stop talking about comics and we will move on to something else we are incredibly positive about. Let's get into some movie speculation, shall we? We have not done movies for a bit. If you're listening to this on the day it drops, on the 8th of September, then this weekend is Marvel's D23 event, which will feature, we would imagine, some announcements about future projects and whatnot. And the rumour is that they will be announcing who they are casting as Sue Richards, stroke Sue Storm, in the forthcoming Fantastic Four MCU movie. Rumour has it that Sue Storm will be played by Jodie Comer, who you probably will know from either... Um, Killing Eve or uh, Free Guy. These are both things that I have personally not seen, so I cannot comment on her performances in them. But I can say that she looks right, so there's that. And while I don't think I've ever read a review of Free Guy, uh, Killing Eve seems very popular with the critics and the viewers. So there's that too. That's you know they they, they seem to be going for quality here. I hope so because Sue Storm, later Sue Richard is a really important character in Marvel, and she's been very badly served in the comics. She was the first female superhero of Silver Age Marvel, and she is a founding member of the Fantastic Four. But in the comics, she's so often sidelined. Well, Mr. Fantastic and the Thing and, and the Human Torch do their thing. I did recently have a comics miniseries that focused just on her. It's called Invisible Woman. That did explore the implications of her powers. She's often just been sidelined as somebody who can turn things invisible. But that's not all she can do. She can also generate invisible force fields. And it's been revealed that her ability to become invisible is because she can bend light. And if she can bend light, she can do all kinds of things. Only can she make it so that people can't see her. She can make it so that people can't see anything. She can make other items invisible. She can make everything invisible so that no light enters the retinas of somebody's eyes at all. That is a huge power. Invisible force fields thing. I mean, yes, she can use them to create shields, but she can also use them to move her, her about. She can walk 
on invisible force fields, so it would look as though she was walking on air. She could slide down them, it would be like she was flying. I think I've seen them do that once in the comics, but it's something that they really could make a lot more of, in the way that, you know, um, Kamala Khan uses her light powers in the Ms. Marvel TV show to walk across spaces. Sue Storm could do that. So I hope, if this rumour is true, I hope, first of all, that Ms. Comey does a good job of Sue Storm. I think she deserves to be portrayed by somebody great. I, I think Jessica Alba did a good job in the movie, for whatever that's worth. I hope that if they are going ahead and making a Fantastic Four movie, treat the Invisible Woman with a bit more respect than she's been treated in the past. And I'm also going to give you a positive spin on some not necessarily positive TV news. Because things are still being cancelled over at HBO. Obviously there's the whole thing with the Batgirl movie. But they've also cancelled the animated Batman the Caped Crusader cartoon series which is a shame because that was going to be sort of the the successor to the original batman the animated series bruce tim who was behind the original animated series is involved with this and it was supposed to be coming out on hbo max not going to do that now but positive bit they are shopping this around to other networks and it's inconceivable to me that somebody else won't pick this up because it, it's basically going to be good and it's going to be popular. We know that because of the pedigree of the people involved and because we've seen their work on Batman before, because we've seen Batman the Animated Series, which is some of the best Batman there's ever been. So really, really positive for that. OK, it's not going to be turning up at HBO Max. Fine, it can turn up somewhere else. I don't care as long as it turns up. And on the subject of things going well and nicely and in our favour at HBO Max, Harley Quinn, the animated series, has been confirmed for another season. So that's survived the chopping block for now and is definitely coming back over at HBO. So overall, still not happy with what's going on at HBO. Too much stuff is being cancelled. They seem to be going far too much into just like reality TV and unscripted stuff, which has its place, but that shouldn't be all there is. You know, I'm still I'm still nervous about this. I, I think if this is the way that streaming is going to go, and if TV is going to become mostly streaming, and it, it seems that that's the way the wind's blowing, then the future potentially contains nothing but reruns and reality that really is not the bright and rosy future that i would like to see but we are being positive and so we will move on last week i had some book recommendations for you and you know what i've got a couple more as part of my tutoring business i have started teaching some younger kids you know kids pre-gcse and so i've been looking at young adult fiction a little bit more than I normally would have and I've been reminded of some absolute classics. This week I'm going to recommend two geeky books for younger readers and older readers too by the same author Terry Pratchett who I think definitely qualifies as a geek favourite as well as a national treasure. Pratchett of course is probably best known for the Discworld series which out at least as a sort of parody of Tolkien-esque fantasy, but grew into something much bigger than that. There are books in the Discworld series that were aimed squarely at younger readers. Uh, the Tiffany Aching series, for instance, and The Amazing Morris and His Educated Rodents, all aimed at sort of teens and preteens, although thoroughly enjoyable for adults too. That's the way Terry wrote. I'm going to recommend two lesser known Pratchett novels for younger readers because they're both brilliant. The first is Nation. Now, Nation is set in a slightly alternative history, a slightly alternative 1860s. The British king has been killed in a pandemic and so have the next 137 people in line to the throne. This unlikely circumstance means that a man who is currently a diplomat on the other side of the world is now the rightful king of England and he must be brought back. 
That's not what this book is about, though. Against that background, far away in this great pelagic ocean, which is the name in this alternative history for the Pacific, there has been a tsunami. A tsunami that has destroyed the nation. The nation was a small, by our standards, but large, by their standards, island, considered blessed by its people for the natural resources that it has. But now, only one member of that nation survives. Mao, a young Pacific Islander who's lost literally everything. His family, his friends, his village. wave has taken everything. The same wave has destroyed the sailing vessel Sweet Judy, bringing it far inland onto the island that was once the nation, and killing all on board except Ermintrude, young teenage daughter of the man who should be king. It was taking her to him in his, I think we're supposed to think he's in the Bahamas, but I'm not sure, but wherever his diplomatic post is, it was taking her to him. Now, the only two people on the island are Ermintrude and Mao. They can't speak each other's language. They don't understand each other's culture. Slowly but surely, Mao starts to deal with what's happened. Slowly but surely, so does Ermintrude. Now, the horror of this isn't underplayed. There is a, a scene in which Mao has to take the bodies of the people of his village and deal with them. And it's harrowing. But it's described in a way that is suitable for younger readers. It's not scary, but it does underline the enormity of what's happened. Eventually, Mao and Ermintrude meet and start to learn about each other, start to work together. And slowly but surely, Mao starts to rebuild his nation. He hears the voices of the grandfathers, the ancestors, in his head. They're mostly cross with him. And slowly but surely, more people, more people who survived the wave, start to find the nation. And a new nation starts to form. There are problems on the way, uh, and a large part of the book is how those problems are dealt with. It's a story about religion and faith and science and culture. It's quite an angry book. It's very firmly anti-colonial. It's a real champion of the importance of both art and science to culture. I read it when it first came out uh, in 2008 because I've read everything by Pratchett as soon as it's come out. Nearly. And I loved it then and I love it now. It's I'm going to be using it as a sort of class reader with some of my younger students and I'm really looking forward to it. It's an absolutely cracking book. It goes on at a cracking pace. You know, there's no no slowness here. It keeps your interest on every single page. The moral dilemmas and things that it explores are are real and things that people really do need to grapple with. So if I was the kind of show that gave out stars, this would be five out of five or ten out of ten or whatever. I can't recommend it highly enough. If you've got kids anywhere from kind of year five up, really, you should get them this book. One of the few prose books we sell at Desties, and I'm sure Imagine Things will also have it in stock. And if they don't, they can certainly get it for you if you're in Harrogate. Your local independent bookstore, if you're elsewhere, will definitely be able to get it for you. Please shop with your local independent bookseller. Thank you. Now, the second book I want to recommend is called Dodger, and it's it's not a retelling of Oliver Twist. It's, again, set in a slightly alternative London, and it features a character who is a bit of a pickpocket called Dodger, who lives in a, a one-room kind of garret with a Semitic-looking gentleman who definitely not Fagin, absolutely not, and who meets a writer called Charlie. Dodger is a scamp, a scoundrel, and he makes his living by toshing, which is basically getting into the drainage system and finding items of value. It was a real thing that real people really did. It was incredibly dangerous. Lots of people died doing it. It was technically illegal. For the purposes of the story, whilst underground doing his toshing thing, Dodger becomes aware of 
a young woman in trouble and he rescues her and the story builds from there who is this woman why did she need to escape from the people that she was with this journalist called charlie dickens paying so much attention it's a fantastic book to read if you know oliver twist but because it's aimed at younger people there's a very good chance that most of the people who read dodger have never read oliver twist because newsflash Whatever the GCSE exam boards think, Dickens is actually quite hard going if you're under 40. You don't need to have read Oliver Twist to get the references here. There are some nods. Obviously, uh, the Fagin-like character that Dodger rooms with uh, is, is a nod to the existence of Fagin. There are references to other things that happen in Oliver Twist. Of course, in this world, Oliver Twist is a book that Charlie Dickens hasn't written yet. so. What we're really seeing is elements woven into the story that will inspire Dickens to write Oliver Twist. Dodger is a fantastically relatable character. Catch it. So the whole thing is written with a great deal of wit and wordplay. As I should say, was Nation. I, 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 yes, it details some terrible things and there is a, a very clear viewpoint being expressed in Nation. But it's still funny. If you're one of those people who has been avoiding Pratchett because you don't really do fantasy. And I know that contrary to popular opinion, there are many geeks who aren't really into fantasy. So if you've been avoiding Pratchett because you thought it was just the Discworld, these are two excellent, excellent books that you can get into and experience the, the wit and the wisdom of Terry Pratchett, because he really was incredibly wise. Certainly, I'll make the case that if you were going to have to start to build a society from scratch, Nation's a pretty good guidebook on how to do it. So, that's this week's book recommendations, both available wherever books are sold. As I say, in Harrogate, I would recommend going down to see Imagined Things at the bottom of Montpellier Hill. If you are not in Harrogate, then you will have a good independent bookseller somewhere near you. If you are not aware, of an independent bookshop near you, can I point you to the brilliant website bookshop.org. Links in the show notes. They will not only find you a local independent bookstore near you, they will allow you to shop with that bookstore or any bookstore in the UK online. There really is no need when shopping for books to go anywhere associated with rivers and rainforests. You know who I'm talking about. Bezos has got enough money, please, where you can, and you can, shop local. But we are not going to descend into doing the boring preachy part again. We are going to blast on through to something even more positive. Because, although I suppose this is kind of a preamble to the Geek Community Notice Board, which is coming up in a bit, but first, you will be aware that Thought Bubble, what is for me the greatest festival of comics currently available in this country, is coming to Harrogate in November. Yeah, I'll, I'll do a feature on the guests that are coming to Thought Bubble closer to the time. It really is a stellar, stellar lineup. But the guests and the exhibitors are not the only thing that make Thought Bubble so special. What really makes Thought Bubble special the small army of volunteers, the red shirts, these incredible people are always there. Wherever you look at Thought Bubble, there will be a red shirt. And if you need anything at Thought Bubble, there will be a red shirt who will deal with it for you. If you need to know where something is, if you need to know what time something is happening, if you've got separated from your group, whatever it is, there will be a red shirt around who will help you deal with your issue are utterly, utterly fabulous. Without question, there could be no Thought Bubble without them. Certainly without them, anything that Thought Bubble tried to do would be a lot less cool. And you can be a redshirt. They are recruiting now. If you go to the Thought Bubble website, that's thoughtbubblefestival.com, you can volunteer to be a redshirt. You can join that group of amazing, enthusiastic, positive people. And they always, seem, they always seem to be having the best fun. So if that sounds like something you might be interested in, 
go to the Thought Bubble website, uh, links in the show notes, but Google is also your friend, and apply to be a redshirt. Honestly, it'll be the best weekend you have this year. Honestly, I don't say that lightly. It really, really will. Has that a positivity? And speaking of positivity, let's get on to the geek community notice board. We've got a couple this week. First of all, I would like to draw your attention to the Sunday Board Games Club at the Secret Lair in Hornbeam Park. It's terribly far from Harrogate College in, you know, Harrogate. They have um, tabletop role-playing games such as Dungeons & Dragons going on every night, I think, pretty much in the week. And if you fancy some geeky sociability... Is that a word? I think that's a word. Anyway, if you fancy getting together with some fellow geeks and playing a few board games, then you might enjoy their Sunday Board Game Club. Free to members. Uh, there is a charge for non-members to attend, but you could always, you know, join. Details available, obviously, from the secret lair themselves. And while we're on the subject of geeky things to do, because that's what the Geek Community Notice Board is for, I will throw in also the Geek Pub Quiz in all its incantations. Incantations? Incarnations, I think is what I meant. Ugh, I'm having a really bad day with language today. Sorry, folks. On Sunday, the 18th of September at 7.30pm at Major Tom's Social on the Ginnel in Harrogate, it will be the original and best Geek Pub Quiz. You can join Steve, Helen and Chris and, of course, all the amazing staff at Major Tom's for just the best quiz night ever. It's, it's a brilliant, brilliant night. Over 10 years now, this thing has been going. It keeps getting better. I don't know how they do it, but they do. Loads of great prizes from loads of great sponsors, including Destination Venus, I confess. It is just a cracking, cracking night. And speaking of cracking, cracking nights, if you like a bit of midweek quiz action, on Thursday, the 29th of September, again, at 7.30, at the Everyman Cinema in Harrogate, the Geeky Movie Quiz will be there. Again, join Helen and Steve for an evening of geek-themed movie questions. What is one of the coolest bars in Harrogate? I know it's a cinema. It's also one of the coolest bars in Harrogate. And I'm not just saying that because they're my landlords. I'd be saying that even if they weren't. That's the Geek Movie Quiz. Awesome questions. Awesome night out. Again, fantastic prizes from some fantastic sponsors. It just never fails to be a grand night out. Now, if you are listening to this and you're thinking... Ooh, I wish I could get my geeky event plugged on a radio show and a podcast. Well, I'm pleased to tell you that you can. Just email info at destinationvenus.co.uk what's happening, when it's happening and where it's happening, and I will happily plug you. Whether you're in Harrogate or far, far away, it does not matter. We do have listeners all over the place. We've got listeners in Africa, North Africa. Eastern Europe, America, Canada. We've got a listener in Brazil. I know. I don't know why either, but we do. So wherever you are, if you've got something you want to plug, info at destinationvenus.co.uk. There is no charge for this service. It's just geeks supporting geeks. It's what we do. Info at Destination Venus is also the place to go if you have got comments, queries, complaints, or suggestions about the show. And www.destinationvenus.co.uk is where you will find the show notes for this and, I was going to say every, most other episodes of Geeking with Destination Venus. They are all there. If you go to the homepage, click on the blog button thing on the, on the homepage and scroll down and look for the appropriate Geeking with Destination Venus. Links to all the stuff we talk about, uh, and if we talk about pictures, the pictures will be there. I must confess, I do try very hard to get the show notes up on the same day that the show drops. I do occasionally fail to do that. I have failed to do that in the last couple of weeks, in fact. But they are always up eventually. So if you want more information about any of the things I rant on about on here, there is probably more information available via those show notes. You may have noticed that we've not done A Wonderful Woman of Science for a little while. And that's because I've got loads pre-recorded, but I've never been able to fit them in. They're always the wrong length. So I'm going to address that by doing a multi-part 
Wonderful Woman of Science segment. Yeah, hey, I do you know multiple part review sections and stuff. Why not Wonderful Woman of Science? When there's a lot to say about somebody, why not take the time and do it over several weeks? So we're going to start a little... Well, this week I'm introducing the idea. Next week we'll start properly. Looking at the career of the brilliant Sally Ride. Now, you may not know the name. You may know the name. If you're interested in space, you'll know the name Sally Ride. She was the first American woman to fly in space. Not the first woman, by no means. Uh, the first woman to fly in space was Valentina Tereshkova in 1963. And uh, a little while later, in 1982, Svetlana Savitskaya also flew with the Soviet, as it was then, space agency. I think she flew a Salyuz, no, Salyut mission, I think she flew. Sally Ride was the first American woman to do so. Uh, she joined NASA in 1978, and she flew first in 1983 uh, aboard the STS-7 mission, which was uh, aboard the space shuttle Challenger. She was a mission specialist aboard that mission, uh, which basically means she was there to do a particular job. She was operating the uh, robotic arm, the Canada arm, uh, that was used to deploy two communication satellites uh, on that mission. She then flew again aboard the STS-41G mission in 1984, again aboard Challenger, and in total she spent 343 hours and a little bit more in space. 343 hours. That's not that long by today's standards, but by the standards of the early 1980s, that was a, you know, a fair amount of time to have spent in microgravity. She left NASA in 1987 to pursue other things. And actually, she's worth talking about in depth, not really because she was the first American woman in space. That's kind of irrelevant, given all her other achievements. She was an absolute beacon, a real trailblazer in so many ways. I'm really looking to, forward to getting into she was an absolutely magnificent role model for just a multitude of reasons, which we will get into next week. And we will concentrate on her early life and the path that took her to NASA. Bear in mind that NASA had been actively against putting women in space for quite a long time, as uh, Wally Funk, who we talked about on this show before, knew to her cost, called... Um, Mercury 13 group of women put so much time, effort and energy into be, trying to be part of the Mercury program. And they passed all of the tests, or most of them did, pass all of the tests that the men had had to take on equal terms. No quarter was asked or given by the Mercury 13. In the end, they were turned away just because they were women. Obviously, by the late 1970s, attitudes had changed. But honestly... If you remember the late 1970s, you'll know they hadn't changed that much. So getting into the astronaut corps at NASA for a woman in the late 1970s was one heck of an achievement. And so next week we will look at the road that Sally Ride took to get into NASA and earn that, that seat on aboard the space shuttle. Also next week we'll have a review of the next episode of She-Hulk. We may have some more positive chatter about the rings of power we're not going to get into the debate about diversity again ever if i have anything to do with it i think you all know where i stand on that now i i kind of don't see any point just constantly repeating myself so we're going to let that matter lie and you can just take my views on it as previously read so next week we'll have some science i'm probably not going to talk about artemis but there will be some other space stuff and do you know what other stuff may occur between now and then that I really need to talk about. But for now, we are basically out of time. So, thank you for listening. Uh, this has been a Venus Rising media production in a secret location somewhere in Harrogate, North Yorkshire. We will see you next week. Until we do, be kind to yourself. Be kind to everybody else. Stay safe, and above all else, stay geeky. We'll see you soon, folks. We'll see you soon. <laughs> <laughs>